Well, good morning. A lot of good stuff going on in the church right now. How cool is that, that 19 families have agreed to be host families for international students just in the past few weeks? Isn't that great? I love to hear that. And I, I could imagine a day in which it would just become part of a reputation that, oh, people come here from all over the world to Kearney. And this church, Carney E. Free, helps to take them in because we believe in mission, we believe in loving people in the name of Christ, and that's really, really cool that that's happening already. If you're interested in that program, you can find out more right outside these doors as we still have a kiosk there for anyone who would like to sign up for uh, the International Student Friendship Program with UNK. It's a great opportunity to, uh, to love people who are new to the country and could use a welcome here. By the way, who's that woman in that video, Susie Boykin? She's, man. Could someone get me an introduction with her? <laughs> ha, ha, ha. That's my wife, if you didn't know. Okay, my better half. One last quick announcement uh, before we enter in. August 14th, uh, next Sunday, at 6.30 to 8 o'clock, we'll have our annual Wow, You Are Amazing uh, volunteer event. And uh, this is a tremendous event in which we... Uh, gather together as a church family, those who are regularly serving in the church. If you're regularly a part of some kind of ministry, you serve in, in some way, big or small in the church, we would love for you to be a part of this event. Uh, we've sent out postcards, but of course we can't get everyone because so many people are serving here that we uh, are sometimes not even able to completely track. So if you are a regular volunteer here, we'd welcome you to come back here next Sunday night at 6.30 for the Wow, You Are Amazing uh, volunteer Appreciation Night, which will be kind of a carnival-type atmosphere out there in the lobby, followed by a short but super fun worship service in here, and even an opportunity to win a chance to throw a pie in your favorite pastor's face. Okay, come back, right? If you choose to throw a pie at me, I choose key lime, please. Okay, this morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7, and if you want to turn there with me, it's in the Old Testament, in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament. If you're in there uh, in your traditional Bible, as I am, or in an app, whatever you use is fine, but that's where we'll be camping this morning. As I read through Daniel 7 several times over these past weeks, preparing and praying through this message, it struck me that people love end times predictions, don't they? I mean, if the Left Behind series is any indication, it sold 65 million volumes, which is all about the end times. And there's some good stuff in there, I'm sure. Uh, but people love the end times predictions. To cite another example, uh, Y2K, right? Y2K was a huge phenomenon. Do you remember that? You went to the store and you could not find any duct tape or, watered, or, or bottled water, could you? It was all going to be used to fix computers. Most recently, it was the Mayan calendar. And again, it's people of all stripes that are fascinated with estimating the end of the world. And I had a friend who was convinced that 2012 would be the close of history with the Mayan calendar, which made me think of this cartoon. I only had enough room to go up to 2012. Ha, that'll freak somebody out someday, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> and then most recently, it was the blood moons a few months ago. Remember the spat of blood moons and people trying to equate that with uh, the apocalypse uh, that was coming soon and... And it strikes me that uh, some of us long for the end times as well for more obvious reasons, like this one. Would anyone agree? <laughs> a few laughs? Come on. All right. You Germans and Scandinavians need to laugh more. All right. People who love end times predictions love 
Daniel 7. Daniel 7 leads us to some end times predictions, some end times prophecies. And people who love to study the end times particularly love this chapter. And it's a unique chapter compared to others that I've preached on in this series. I, for one, am not amongst those who, who really loves end times predictions. I value uh, this piece of scripture deeply. But um, I've, I guess I've just always kind of err on the side of Jesus has given me uh, what I know to be my role on earth. And my calling is to make him known more. My calling is to demonstrate the beauty of God, to teach the beauty of God, and to point others to become servant leaders for the cause of Christ that help reconcile others to the cause of Christ. I know that's what I'm here for. And it's, uh, it's to make him known and to help others get to know him. And because of that, maybe I've oftentimes seen the end time speculations as a misuse of my energy. Jesus seemed to agree when he said, no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's returning, not the angels in heaven, nor even the Son of Man, but only the Father in heaven knows that day. But in spite of that conviction, I must confess in studying Daniel these past months that I've probably missed out on some of what the Bible tells us elsewhere, that the returning of the Lord Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. It's to be our blessed hope and we're to look forward to it because it's the day that Christ is going to come back and he's going to make all things right and we are to wait for it with a sense of eager anticipation. So much so that the very final words of this book in Revelation are Jesus telling the Apostle John, I am coming soon. And the Apostle John responding with the response that would be wise for us, come Lord Jesus, come. And as we see our world spiraling out of control at times, I find myself saying that a bit more. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So this morning in Daniel 7, we're going to do a little bit of a turn in this book. The first six chapters of this book were dedicated to more biographical material in which we see the example of Daniel for how to thrive in Babylon. The example of, from Daniel of what wisdom looks like for gaining credibility, of what courage and humility looks like for gaining credibility, how to become people of repentance, people who pray for our leaders, even in a godless world, a godless nation, a godless Babylon. We see all of that in the first six chapters of Daniel, but now here in chapter 7, Daniel begins to interpret some dreams and visions that speak to the end. And speak to future prophecy, some of which was fulfilled at the time of Christ, some of which was fulfilled when uh, the Jews got to return to their homeland, but other portions of which won't be fulfilled until Christ returns in glory. And the purpose of all of this that we will look at starting today is for our encouragement. It's for our comfort. It's for the hope and the expectation of future victory. It's not to speculate, it's not to scare or to frighten, it's for encouraging our hope. So with that said, let's enter into Daniel 7, and uh, we'll start at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, so this is the second king of Babylon that Daniel 
is living under now. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. It's like a portrait of a windstorm here in Nebraska, only with a sea. These four great winds of heaven stirring up the sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And here's the vision that he saw. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, an eleventh horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That's his first vision, and he responds to this vision in verses 15 and 28. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Wouldn't you agree? You get that vision, you'd be anxious. And then it goes on in verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I love how straightforward the Bible is. This is the Bible's way of saying, oh my, (laughs) what is going on here with all of these beasts and all of this image? And you see his color changed as ours would too. He shifted from a light shade of brown to probably a mix of yellowish green in this moment as he contemplates this vision. And uh, this is a prophetic passage. It begins with the bad news here, and it will end in a passage that I'll read in a moment with good news. There's two different visions here in Daniel chapter 7, and first the bad news, which we'll cover here before we enter into a fifth kingdom, which speaks speaks to us the good news that we can anticipate as well. So if you're taking notes in your outline, the four creatures reveal a world that is under the sway of cruel human kingdoms. These four creatures, these four beasts, signify a world that is under the sway of cruel human kingdoms. They parallel these uh, kingdoms that are noted in chapter 2. In chapter 2, they're noted for their power and their glory. Here in chapter 7, they're noted for their cruelty, how they devour one another. And as best as I can tell through the scholarship that I've done over the years, here are the four kingdoms. Let me share them with you. The first is the lion, and the lion is the Babylonian kingdom. 
And the Babylonian kingdom is the one that, of course, conquered Israel and Daniel and brought them into exile, destroyed the temple. And Daniel spent most of his life in that kingdom. The second kingdom is the bear, and that's the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medes and the Persians came together, and they defeated the Babylonian kingdom. They defeated them, and then Daniel spent the remainder of his life under the Medo-Persian kingdom. They actually gave the Jews an opportunity to return to their homeland a little bit later on. The third kingdom was the leopard, and the leopard is the Greek empire that eventually defiled the rebuilt kingdom of the Jews. The Jews were allowed to go back to their homeland. Then the Greeks came in and they defiled that rebuilt homeland, defiled the temple, and also the Greeks developed the philosophical and academic foundation that led to the fourth kingdom, this fourth beast that doesn't even have a caricature here, which is the Roman Empire, that fourth beast that existed at the time of Jesus. Now you'll notice in this reading that these four beasts have little resemblance to anything in creation. That's intentional in this vision because they're not made by God. They are warring against God's creation, including his people. They're symbols of forces that war against God's creation. Daniel lived in the cruel ages, again, of the Babylonian kingdom and the Medo-Persian empires. And as is true today, some kingdoms are less cruel than other kingdoms. And it's significant to know that the Medo-Persian kingdom under King Cyrus eventually, about 10-15 years from now, allowed the Jews to go back to their homeland of Israel and rebuild their temple there and reconstitute their people. They were still very wicked in so many ways, and the Jews were still second-class citizens within the Medo-Persian kingdom, but they were much less cruel than the Babylonians. And that's significant for us to remember because sometimes we have this idea that world is just, the entire world is just plummeting down like a rock on a hillside to its eventual destruction, and it can never be changed. It's just getting worse and worse, and it will be destroyed, and it can never be changed. Um, but the truth is, history has changed, and things have at times gotten better. And so also we get to work and pray for the betterment of our culture. That's part of the lesson from the Medo-Persian kingdom that we get. But the beasts here represent four evil kingdoms. They represent not just an individual sinner. They don't represent just the kings of those kingdoms. But they represent the whole of an organized group of people that are working together frequently for evil. So maybe this analogy helps. Uh, it's summer wedding season, and I frequently hear from young engaged couples who come to me, and I ask them, why do you want to get married? And they say, well, I have this problem and that problem, but this person will complete me, and I won't have this problem anymore. All of the married couples just gave a big sigh and maybe a chuckle. They know better. There's this false rose-petaled sense that we get from Hollywood that this person will complete me, when in reality, all you're doing is bringing two sinners together, which doubles your sinful patterns. And uh, this is the reality that people together, just two people together, have greater capacity for more ugly. They also have greater capacity for more beauty when they are redeemed together, but it's a, it's a good reminder to us that people coming together actually have more capacity for doing wrong. And you multiply that. I'm sorry to spoil anyone's summer wedding season with that analogy. I didn't mean to. But 
you, you get the picture that people come together and actually they have greater capacity for, for doing ugly things. And you multiply that by millions, and that's a portrait that we get of these kingdoms coming together, millions of people coming together, devoted to a singular, terrible cause, which we've seen over and over again in history, which has produced things like slavery and racism and fascism and communism, and on and on it could go. And that's the portrait of the beasts that Daniel is trying to portray for us here. Individuals like you and me by ourselves can be harmful, can we not? We all have that in us. But collectively, people devoted to an evil cause have greater capacity for doing terrible things. So Daniel's dream is depicting this world under the sway of evil human kingdoms and scholars believe the worst of these kingdoms is the fourth beast, which represents the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, which Daniel did not experience himself, but he gets this, this description of the coming Roman Empire. Verse 7 and 8, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now there's been no end of speculation as to what those ten horns are and what that eleventh horn is. And again, I don't know that we can say all of this with dogmatic certainty what they all are, but my best guess is First, you have these four kingdoms, which represent those four actual kingdoms that have come and gone. And then you have these ten horns that perhaps represent other kingdoms that sprouted out of the Roman Empire, but they also have come and gone, and yet at the same time, they represent other evil kingdoms that are still at war with us today, and then a final evil horn, a final kingdom, which is represented by Antichrist, representing Satan himself, that will rise at the very end. And we still live in that evil age, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 4. One day, Antichrist will rise up under the hand of Satan, making great accusations against God's children, and we live in the already but not yet of this prophecy. These wicked kingdoms have come and go. Others, symbolically, that they represent are still with us now, but one day Christ will come and be ultimately the victor over all of them. D does that make sense? Does that make sense what's going on in that passage? Or did I make it as clear as mud? I hope that makes some sense. They're literal kingdoms and yet at the same time they represent other evil powers that will continue to rise up until Christ determines it is time to return and to judge the living and the dead. Now that's the bad news that comes out of the first vision. Fortunately, there's also good news that comes out of a second vision, which we'll see starting in verse 9. The final kingdom reveals God is in charge on your outline. Reveals that God is in charge and will ultimately judge evil and he will permanently establish goodness, and so we must stay faithful. God is in charge behind the scenes. He will ultimately establish his goodness and his righteousness forever and ever, and we are invited, even in this evil age, to stay faithful. 
Where do you see that, Adrian? Verse 9, it goes on. As I looked, Daniel says, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And, court so, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words, and the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So what you have here is this beautiful vision of one called the Ancient of Days. Who could that be? This is God Most High. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. He's the one who spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. This is the God who is characterized by hair like wool. That speaks of wisdom. Gray hair. We got any gray hairs in here? That just means wisdom, my friends, not old age. Uh, white clothes symbolizes his purity, his righteousness, his perfect goodness. The, the flames coming from his throne speak to his immutable power, his piercing power, and the fact that his ways will never be defamed. His ways will never be thwarted. Again, this is God Most High, the Ancient of Days, and he will ultimately win the war. You cannot read this vision and miss this point from Daniel. God is teaching Daniel, and God is teaching our people as well, that though it looks at times like the world is spinning out of control, and though it looks at times like God has left the building, and evil is running rampant like a wild hyena, yet, even in these days, we can count on the fact that the Ancient of Days still reigns, and he will win the final battle. We can hold on to that no matter what happens in our world. No matter where things go in America, we can trust that God remains on his throne and ultimately he will be victorious. So stay faithful. The vision goes on to say in verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not ever be destroyed. Who is that? Who is that? That's Jesus himself. One like a son of man. And what we have here in this vision is a portrait of the triune God, the Ancient of Days with the Son of Man, who were in cooperative, loving relationship from the very foundations of the earth. And here you have, yet again, this Old Testament glimpse of the Son of Man, of Jesus in pre-incarnate form. And he is going to come, and he's going to have dominion over all nations, and he's going to have all authority. You might remember this passage because Jesus quoted it in Matthew 26. When Jesus is appearing in Matthew 26 before the Jewish Supreme Court and they're accusing him 
uh, trying to find a crime against him by which they could crucify him. And the Jewish Supreme Court asked him, is it true that you are the Son of God? And he says, yes, it's true that I am. What we just sang about, I am, I am he. But he didn't stop right there. He went on to say, and you will see the Son of Man coming with glory on the right hand, with the power of God, on the clouds of heaven, in a chariot. And they immediately recognized that these were the words of Daniel chapter 7, and Jesus was saying, I am he. I am that son of man that was spoken of some 600 years ago. And so what did they do? They said, crucify him. They immediately said, that's blasphemy. We need not any more witnesses crucify him. It's always exceedingly strange to me when I hear people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. No one in the first century ever, ever questioned these claims when he clearly claimed to be God. He said, I'm coming as one on the chariot, the son of man. This is Old Testament language, though, that is speaking of frequently. I'd encourage you to look at the outline on the back of your handout, though, this morning, and do a little study this week based on these passages of this language of the chariot and the son of man coming on the clouds. And you'll see this is frequent Old Testament language that Jesus simply applies to himself. He says, that's me, I'm the son of man, and I'm bringing my kingdom. My kingdom has now come. Now again, there's this already but not yet nature to this kingdom. And maybe another analogy would help. Raise your hand with me if you remember Operation Desert Storm in 1991. Did you raise your hand? Okay, there's a lot of high school and college students in this room. I'm dating myself a bit. But in Operation Desert Storm in 1991, the United States, along with 34 other countries, invaded Iraq after Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And these 35 countries, well, went in together, and you would frequently hear this line from General Norman Schwarzkopf and General Colin Powell, that we are coming into Iraq with overwhelming force. Do you remember that? They, they said over and over again, we're coming in with overwhelming force. And if you remember, that war was over before it even began. In the next like 45 days, it was done. But it was really over the moment they said overwhelming force. But if you remember, there were soldiers on the ground in Iraq that continued to fight for those 45 days, and then much more. Even though they were totally defeated, even though they had already declared the end of the war, they still continued to fight. The victory was done. And so it is with Christ against Satan. The war is already over. He's already defeated the enemy by the cross of Christ, but it won't be consummated, and there's still fighting going on with Satan and demons that are opposed to us until he comes back again. On the right hand of the power of God, in a chariot on the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man will reign forever and ever. He came the first time with overwhelming humility. He will come the second time with overwhelming force. Do you believe it? This is our future, my friends. And you ask, why? Why is he taking so long? Why is it taking so long as our, as our world seems to be plummeting out of control? It's for love. This is why it's taking so long. He said when he went to the cross, when I am lifted up, I will judge the ruler of this world, John 12. Now is time for judgment on this world. Now is time for the ruler of this world to be condemned. But I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men and women to myself. This is what Christ wants. This is why he's waiting. This is patience. 
He desires to draw men and women to himself. Perhaps even men and women in this very room who haven't bowed their knee to Christ would be drawn even today to him. He is patient, but he will not be patient forever. The promise of Christ's return is a reminder to all of us to get right with God wherever we are today, to repent, to turn to him, to make him Lord over our lives because though his patience is like a thousand years, it will not last forever. It is the love of God that is making him wait, but one day he will tarry no longer. He will come and that will be our blessed hope. Now let me close here with three characteristics of this coming kingdom of God that we see out of Daniel chapter 7. The first one is this. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and yet at the same time, it is a humble kingdom. If you look at verse 27, it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and, his, and all dominions shall serve and obey him forever. And it's really important to see this contrast. The kingdoms of this world are temporary, and they are known for lust for power and arrogance and greed. Are they not? They're known for lust for power and arrogance and greed. But the kingdom of God will be eternal, and it is known for generosity and humility and love. But where do I see that? I see it again in verse 27. The whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. It's really incredible when you think about it. God Most High, the triune God, is going to choose to give some of the reign for his eternal kingdom over to ordinary tiddlywinks like us. He is. He's going to give us an opportunity to reign with him. He's going to give part of his great eternal reign over to ordinary people like us because in his humility, this is the way he does it. You're not going to be a minion in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. You're going to reign with Jesus Christ in glory. You're not going to be a slave in Rome's kingdom. You're going to have responsibility in Christ's kingdom forever. You're not going to be a little servant in the Persian kingdom. You are going to rule for all eternity with Christ at the right hand of God, worshiping him. It will not be boring. I can promise you that. That's what we can anticipate, being in a kingdom that is forever everlasting and yet humble. He gives part of it to us. Secondly, this kingdom will begin with suffering, but it will end in glory. Verse 25 the enemy will come, and he shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Anyone else feel worn out in here? I do. Sometimes I just feel so worn out by this world. Sometimes I feel accused and condemned, especially on Sunday afternoon. Not because of you, you're very kind. But there is an enemy who loves to accuse and condemn. And you feel that as well. We live in a world in which there is an enemy that is rampant, and he seeks to wear out the saints of the Most High God. And when he comes, you have to resist him. 
We're going to talk more about that next week and the wonderful power, the wonderful weapons God gives us to resist spiritual enemy of our souls. We have to recognize that we live in this time in which we will endure great suffering. And ironically, that actually helps us to thrive in Babylon, to know that we will suffer for doing what is good, to know it on the front end, to know that it's coming to God's people helps us to thrive in Babylon because we know we're going to need Christ each and every day to get through it, and we will. This kingdom will begin with suffering. There will be a time of suffering, but it will end in Christ's glory when he comes at the end and he will make all things right. I love the fact that Daniel is at the very end of his life here, and he's been in Babylon now for probably 50-some years. And he's peering over the end of his life, and he's also looking over the end of this reign in which the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians are starting to get weaker, and it looks like perhaps Israel will be able to return to their homeland. And Daniel doesn't get to go, but his people are going to get to go home. And it's been 50, 55 years. And so if you can imagine the people of Israel here in Babylon for all of this time, many of them have completely forgotten their native language of Hebrew. Many of them have never seen a scroll from the temple. Many of them have lost all of their cultural heritage, and many of them have never even been to Jerusalem. And so in the midst of that, you would be tempted to settle down and make your citizenship in Babylon. And what Daniel tells his people here through this vision is, your citizenship is not there. Christ is going to bring something greater. And I think there's a foreshadowing of sorts in Israel's return from exile to their promised land. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's return for us to our promised land. That they were not made to settle in Babylon. And guess what, friends? We're actually not made to settle here. We can make this the best we possibly can, and we should. But this is not our citizenship. Destiny awaits us in a far better place than this. Maybe at this moment, Daniel reminded himself, reminded his people of the promise from Jeremiah some 60 years ago now that after 70 years, God said, I know the plans I have for you. I have plans for your future. I have plans for a hope for you, plans to make you prosper and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a hope and a future. And that was a specific promise for Israel. And it spoke to their future destiny back in their homeland of Jerusalem. But I think there's a principle there that is a future promise for us as well, that this is not our end. We have a future destiny that is far better than this. He has plans. He has a hope. He has a future for us. And so we are good to remind ourselves on a regular basis, as I was reminded this past week, it is our blessed hope that Jesus Christ will return As he came the first time with overwhelming humility, so he will come the second time with overwhelming force. And so the proper response from us is come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you will come. As you return to earth in glory, You will come to earth just the way you left the first time. 
on the clouds in glory in a chariot to make all things right. And this is part of our blessed hope because we know when you do come, you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be neither death nor mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the old things have passed away when you come to make all things right. How appropriate it is for us to celebrate all of this at the communion table this morning. Because when we come to the communion table, remember that you came the first time in complete humility to ransom us from sin and death, to give us life, to give us forgiveness, to give us liberty. And we proclaim together as we take these elements that you are coming back in glory to judge the living and the dead. You will make all things right, and we trust you with that. So, Father, we just take a moment now to confess our sins. Every one of us has failed, even this past week. I have in so many ways, Father. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. So I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. Perhaps today would be the day that you Say that to God for the very first time. I am truly sorry, God. I humbly repent. Lord Jesus, would you reign in my life? Would you forgive me by the cross of Christ? And if you would say that today, you'd be welcome to take this bread, which represents Christ's body, and take this cup, which represents his blood, the new covenant, the promise that we are totally forgiven the promise that Christ will come again in glory. We give you all praise, Lord, for your forgiveness. We pray with one voice in the mighty name of Jesus and God's people say, amen, amen.